It's seven degrees here in Nashville, and we're told that it's the coldest it's been in the last 20 years. Our thermostat is set on 62 degrees right now, and overnight we set it back to 58. And we put on a couple extra blankets at night, and we put on a couple sweaters during the day, and maybe even a sock cap. If you've ever wondered what it's like to be an independent musician, that should tell you everything you need to know right there. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. This show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it. And everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Amy Lashley. Amy is a singer and a songwriter, and she writes children's books. And she lives with me here in East Nashville. You can find out everything you need to know about Amy at amylashley.com. I've been trying to get Amy to be a guest on this show for quite a while now, but she's been a little bit shy about it. When I first decided I wanted to do this show... She was actually the person that pushed me into it. She thought it was a really good idea, and she was extremely encouraging. And uh, so you guys can thank her for that. But Amy uh, decided to come downstairs, and we set up some mics and had a little bit of chat over coffee. Here's Amy Lashley. I grew up in a little bitty town called Russellville, Indiana. Um, population 376 as of 1990 when I did the census. <laughs> it was a little farming community. Did you know everybody in the town? Oh, yeah. You knew everybody and knew where they lived and what they did and what their dad did. Everybody knew what everybody did, <laughs> what we're doing, what we're going to do. My dad um, opened a hardware store in the early 60s there, and that's why they moved to Russellville from Crawfordsville, Indiana. That's where both my parents grew up and lived and met. 1954, they were married. What was the story your dad told us last time we saw him about uh, the people coming in? Did they play poker or did they play some games? No, they had. They used to have a little um, weekly poker match at the hardware store, and I think it was every Tuesday. And all the locals would come and have coffee and gather around the the coal stove and shoot the shit and play poker and. <laughs> Try to watch their mouths when a woman came in the door. <laughs> it was the little neighborhood gathering post, I guess. And it later moved, turned into, a, they moved a couple blocks up and mo- turned it into a um, general store. And they had groceries and hardware stuff. And they kept that rolling for, I don't know, 10, 10 12 years, I think. He decided that he it was either sell the store to put my sister through college or go in debt, and he opted to sell the store because he's so frugal and cheap he could not bear the thought of going into debt. <laughs> so, and the store was, I mean, it was big box stores were slowly starting to come in, and people were going to Crawfordsville to 
to shop and not, you know, the business had slowed a little bit. So it, he just thought it was time. But How cheap was he? <laughs> so cheap I wrote a song about it, <laughs> which I'm thankful he took the right way and thought was funny. He used to wear a sock hat. In, in, the, in the house, he would have a sock hat on, and sometimes in the winter, he'd even have his coveralls, you know, those green insulated coveralls, sitting there in his recliner watching television with all that get up on because <laughs> he would not turn up the heat. We had a great big old farmhouse, and the upstairs didn't even have any heat, so it was, it, it was cold in there. That sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> As we say uh, this, the, uh, the furnace is on 62 right now. <laughs> That's why we bring it up during the day, and it was yeah. 58 last night. Yeah, I'm one of five kids, and I'm the only one who got the cheap, the cheap frugal gene. <laughs> I like to call it frugal, but I think it's really just cheap. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, I was one of four kids, and I was really, really just painfully shy, and primarily around adults. I, I called them big people, and I did not want to be around them. I didn't want them to look at me. I really hated it when they were laughing at me. I thought, why are they laughing at me? And they just thought it was maybe cute, or but I just took it as a personal front. Why are these adults always laughing at me? <laughs> <laughs> I remember we had this program at school. I think it was the, it was a bicentennial program, which I embarrassingly, embarrassingly asked one my parents, why don't we have one of these every year? <laughs> but anyway, we our little class was first grade, and our class all the classes sang um, the school programs and all of uh, the kids are on stage singing our little song and I could just hear all the parents giggling and laughing and pointing. And I was so upset when I came home, like, why were they laughing at us, mom? <laughs> I thought we must have been really terrible. I just didn't get adults. And when I was five, I turned five in July and started kindergarten that year. And I was, I was more than ready mentally or intellectually or I knew you know I knew a little bit about to, how to read and numbers and all that stuff but when I got to school I I did not want I didn't want to be there I didn't like the teacher I didn't want just didn't want anything to do with this teacher Mrs. Talbot was her name and um so I would get there my mom dragging me kicking and screaming and I would just sit in the chair I wouldn't do anything I wouldn't talk I wouldn't interact with anyone and it went on for a couple of weeks and um one day I just had it and every morning we would go to the cafeteria from our classroom to get milk for our milk and cookie little snack break and um, I should add we lived about a block and a half from the school but um, we were all those kids were marching to the cafeteria to get our milk and the cafeteria doors were open and I thought I this is it I'm gonna make my break and I ran out that door and I ran all the way home <laughs> And to this day, I can see Mrs. Talbot running after me with her little wedge sandals and her chubby self chasing me the whole way home. Thank God my mom was still there. She was about to leave. But um, she was there when I got there, and I was crying, and they didn't know what they were going to do. But they, they, the worst thing is they marched me back down to school that very day, so I had just run away, and then I had to go back and face my classmates after that, and it was humiliating. <laughs> my brother's friends my one of my brother's friends saw me run by the door run by the classroom window and he to this day says i remember that time i saw your sister running away from kindergarten saw me running out the window <laughs> it was about a couple days after a couple um 
a week or so after that, they decided I was not ready for kindergarten. And I went back the next year without problems, and I guess I got a lot less shy in that extra year's time to grow up, but it was a pretty painful experience. <laughs> I played basketball as soon as I could play. Like I was probably four or five years old when I started dribbling the basketball. I had three brothers, and I played with them, and, and I love me some basketball. Did you play in high school? I played until I was a sophomore. And then I had this coach that I didn't really agree with, and he was always yelling and pissing me off, and I just didn't, I didn't have any tolerance for bullshit. And <laughs> <laughs> one halftime, we weren't doing so well, and at halftime, he was trying to give us this pep talk, which really amounted to him pointing fingers and yelling. And I walked out of this pep talk at halftime, went to the locker room, changed my clothes, and... Um, I had to wait for my ride home till the game was over, so I just went up and sat in the bleachers <laughs> with a couple of friends and my folks, er, with my mom. And um, after the game was over, I was leaving, and the coach walked up to me and said, what happened to you, Amy? And I said, you know, Mr. Bays, I just don't like the way you do things, and I'm quitting. I don't want to <laughs> play for you anymore. <laughs> that was it. That was the end of my basketball career. That was a big deal because you were – a star player, weren't you? No, I don't know. I, w I don't know if I'd say. I was, I was okay. What was your best game? <laughs> My best game was in fifth grade when I scored 24 points. <laughs> 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 I, like I said, I started playing earlier, so I was way better than and more developed than any of the other little girls. And I kicked their asses on the field, <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> 24 points in one, like, eight-minute game or something, and the games were really short. And Anybody who's ever watched a girls' basketball game at that age, it's rare that they score 24 There's not points. a lot of scoring going on. <laughs> I was just the only girl that could do anything with the ball. I knew how to play, and so there wasn't much competition. Didn't we have a basketball game once? I believe I kicked your ass at one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> I don't know that I would uh, quite frame it like that. You lost. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you didn't know what. You didn't know I could even play sports. And here I, I played. We played horse, and I kicked your ass. And we played again. I kicked your ass. And we played one on one. <laughs> you didn't know what to think. Beat by your girlfriend at a man's game. Yeah, well, what was the competition that you were in? Was it pass, shoot, and dribble? Pass, shoot, and dribble. Yeah, you, I forget what you're in elementary and junior high, and um, I think I was. 12, and I won the state competition at Pass, Shoot, and Dribble. Really? I won that year, and I got runner-up the next year. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I shouldn't put it down, but I can <laughs> How many kids were involved in this? Oh, I don't know. It was a, I mean, every, I think every county had a Pass, Shoot, and Dribble contest, and then if you won that, you went to the state or semi-state. I don't know. I forget. So long ago, but I had a great big old trophy, like three feet tall. I thought it was so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger than my brother's turkeys. <laughs> when I was, I think Otis and I have talked about this a lot, but when I was a little kid, music, all music was just music to me. I loved almost all of it. And our, my folks didn't really have many records or anything, but we always listened to the AM radio and WLS out of Chicago. And I just, I loved all music and thought it was all just awesome. I sat in my room every Sunday night and faithfully, <laughs> faithfully listened to Casey Kasem's 
top 40 countdown. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but I loved all of it. <laughs> I think my first um, 45 was another one, Bites the Dust by Queen. <laughs> my oldest brother, Wade, had he had really great taste in music. And as I grew up, I started. he was a big influence on me. And he had lots of college rock and um, stuff like that, like R.E.M. and U2 and all that cool stuff that actually did come out in the 80s that so the 80s weren't all bad but um but way definitely had an influence on my me and it kind of I finally kind of got I don't I don't know snobby but I realized that all music is not created equal (laughs) 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 REM was the first concert I ever went to my sister my sister had moved to Atlanta she was 12 years older than me and um, I went to visit her for spring break, and she took me to see R.E.M. at the Fox Theater. And we got to be ushers, so we got in free, and we got to go down front, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever. When did you first start playing music or singing? Oh, I always sang as a kid. I did, you know, I was a little churchgoer, so I sang at church and um, in the choir and stuff like that. But um, I didn't ever think I was going to be a singer or, or write songs until I, I went to college and... Um, you know, I thought I would get a get a degree and get a job and, you know, make my folks happy. And my about my third year in college, I saw this flyer and they were looking for a, a girl singer. And I said, what the hell? I'm going to try out. And I a friend of my roommate, um, my roommate encouraged me to do it. And I so she went with me because it was kind of creepy to go to some strange man's house and audition. But we went and I ended up getting the job and sang. Right. We sang and we recorded three three records and you know nothing much happened but we played all through college and it was a lot of fun and I really loved it and I thought this is what I'm going to do and I mean did you play parties and things like that or what kind of gigs um, were you playing well we played bars and and um we played a couple parties but it was more bars that type of thing and um the one of the um one of the oh, I can't think of his name but he he organized this these coffee shop kind of things, like coffee. No, no, but it was more like trying to be a folky coffee house thing. But it was in dorms, this big, big, huge dorm, the biggest dorm on campus. And so, um, we played a couple of those shows, and it was so fun. We thought we were some kind of Greenwich Village shit, and in good old Muncie, Indiana, <laughs> <laughs> bunch of folkies sitting around drinking coffee and listening to folk music. That was it. Was a really folky kind of a pretentious band that I was in, but I just wanted to sing. I didn't really care about what we were singing. I just wanted, <laughs> I wanted to sing songs, and I loved it. And that I, Then my nerves did not bother me. I would get a little nervous, but it was no big deal to just get up and sing. I, it didn't affect me, and the older I get, the worse it gets, and the more I don't, it, I just don't enjoy doing it like I did then. And I don't know why, but my nerves kind of gotten the best of me over the years. I wanted to throw in something about Muncie. So people that don't know what Muncie, Indiana is like, there was a documentary done in the 50s where these scientists tried to find the most (laughs) average place in America, and they decided that Muncie, Indiana was that place. That's where I got my fine bachelor's of science degree from good old Muncie, Indiana. Ball State University. Good enough for David Letterman. The land of mediocrity. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in my 20s, I moved around a lot. I lived in Indianapolis after college, and then I moved to Cincinnati because I had a few college friends there, and I lived there for a year, and then 
I moved to Bur- Burlington, Vermont on a whim, and I didn't live there for more than two years. And then I moved to Bloomington, <laughs> lived there for a few <laughs> months. I was just kind of drifting around, just didn't know what the hell I was doing. And one of my brothers, my youngest brother, Casey, lived moved to Seattle with his wife in the 90s, kind of right after the grungy thing hit. They didn't, they'd moved there. And I, so I went to stay with them for a few months and... I couldn't really afford to live there by myself, so I ended up back in Indianapolis, and that's where I met Otis at a Bob Dylan concert. <laughs> we say that's where we met. We, I don't really know if he remembers meeting me there. but yeah, I remember walking around. Uh, I'd seen Dylan before, and it was kind of a, I'd loved Dylan. I had a pretty bad experience at one of the shows, so I <laughs> said I wasn't going to go again. And then my, my best buddy Todd came up with these free tickets to see Dylan and Joni Mitchell at Market Square Arena. So he came and we went, and I remember in the intermission between Joni and Bob, we were walking around and saw a couple of friends. He does remember. And uh, <laughs> and uh, I remember his fr- friends we just said hey to, and there was this pretty girl that was hanging out with them, and uh, I guess that's when we first met. Yeah. I think that was in October, maybe, or November, and then I kept seeing him in bars and stuff, and my friend told me who he was and that he was some singer. And I, so I went to see him play with his band, and I just was like, who is this man? I was really taken with him. <laughs> but I didn't know him. I, but um, then, then a, I don't know, just a week or two later, I just happened to see him across the street, and we ran into each other, and he introduced himself and asked me to come and see him play, and so I did. And we sat and talked afterward, and I think we've kind of been together ever since. <laughs> and that was, that was in 98, December. I joked that she stalked me. <laughs> she kept showing up everywhere that yeah, I was. That's not true. We had mutual friends, and it's a small <laughs> little town. <laughs> I think he stalked me. Not long after Otis and I met, um, it was a Monday night, and he said, hey, you want to come over and eat some pizza and watch wrestling? And it was some guy's pizza, and that's my favorite and I thought, wrestling? He just kidding. He doesn't watch wrestling. There's no way this brainy guy watches wrestling. It's like, hell yeah, pizza. So I come over, and we have this great pizza, and he's watching wrestling, which I think is just this big joke. He's just, he's just messing with me. <laughs> the next Monday, he calls, and he has got the same offer. <laughs> I don't know how many Mondays it went on before I realized he really did like to watch wrestling. <laughs> but I really liked him, and I liked that pizza, and he's good company, so I kept going. But um, he, he it, it turns out wrestling is more of a sentimental, nostalgic thing for time he spent with his dad, but he does, he does enjoy some wrestling. And he tried to get me to go to these local kooky matches. I don't, I don't know what they were, but I kept saying no. And he finally, he finally, I broke down and we went. And um, it was the craziest thing I ever saw. They're throwing boxes of thumbtacks on tables and falling on them. <laughs> <laughs> they had this big like caveman club wrapped in barbed wire and all kinds of sharp things. And they were hitting each other with it. And there was, re- I mean, it was really, there was real blood all over this place in the ring. And at one point they had some fork that somebody had been stabbed with, and I swear to God, the, the the guy that did the stabbing held the fork up for the audience, like, who wants this fork kind of thing? And the man, there was a man in the audience with a little boy on his shoulders, and the little boy's the one who was lucky enough to get the fork, the lucky 
prize of this bloody fork. And I said, oh, my God, I know that man. I, I went to college with that guy in Muncie. And he's letting his little child hold this bloody fork from another man's body. <laughs> Needless to say, I never, ever went back to another wrestling match to this day. <laughs> Those of you who are wrestling fans, uh, it was New Jack. <laughs> He, he was like a gangster and he was a very frightening man, but uh, he was digging this fork into another guy's <laughs> forehead and uh, it's just filled with blood. And then You're when it's over, he's like, uh, you know, holding it up and hey, come on up here, kid. It's a trophy. Like, yeah. And everybody's like, oh, he's such a nice guy. He gave the bloody fork to a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about a high risk category. That little boy was so happy with that holding that fork. <laughs> <laughs> Parent of the year. Here's a prime example of why I don't travel with Otis. People are always asking, why don't you come with him to, you know, Europe or wherever? And for one thing, the way he tours is not a vacation. He, <laughs> he is busting his ass every day, getting from one city to the next, all by himself, carrying hundreds of pounds of suitcases and guitar and all that stuff and it's, it's just not glamorous as it might seem <laughs> it's, it's the one question i get asked more than anything else is where's amy and it's not because i don't want to be with him but just to be with him would be just brutal i just couldn't i can't handle it but um one time we made a road trip out to colorado for a friend to, to visit a friend and um we went to breckenridge and I don't have many migraines, but when I do, they're pretty vicious. And which, after the fact, I found out they can be affected by altitude. <laughs> <laughs> well, we headed out there, and not too far out of the city limits, I started feeling one coming on. And I just had a couple of migraine pills with me, and so I had to take them. And that means I didn't have any left. I, I just didn't plan ahead very well because I had so few migraines at the time. But we get there, and we go straight. We didn't know. We went straight up to the mountains, straight up to Breckenridge, which is what? I don't know. 11,000 feet. 11,000 feet. And I had just, I was just so sick. And People say that they have migraines, and um, I don't think they do. <laughs> if you witnessed Amy's migraine, you would realize just how completely you know crippling it is. And uh, it's not just a headache. It's you know, bent over, dry heaving in the toilet for for hours. <laughs> it's not friendly. It's bad. And so anyway, things weren't too bad while we were there, but we decided on the we were leaving and um we stopped at Garden of Gods. We were gonna head home and um um when a migraine's coming on there's an you see an often see an aura or flashing it's it's just the worst feeling and one was coming on and i knew i didn't have any medicine and oh god what what was going to happen um so we immediately just started driving home and i just got sicker and sicker and we kept having to pull over on the interstate so that i could get sick beside the car every 10 miles every t it was just it was horrendous we made it to kansas somewhere in bleak kansas and otis finally gave up and we pulled into a hotel and I was still getting sick into the night, and he finally just, yeah, we've got to take you to the emergency room. We've got to do something. So we found this hospital, and... Um, Can I jump in here? Yeah, please. You were, I'll take over, since you were kind of out of it at that point. 
we were in the hotel room and it was getting really bad where it was kind of scary uh, how bad you shape you were. So I went down to the hotel manager and asked if there was a hospital close by. And it was a little bitty town in Western Kansas. And, and he said, there was, we took you in and we were there for a good hour and you were in the bathroom on the floor just moaning and dry heaving into the toilet for like an hour. And I kept asking the nurse, you know, why hasn't the doctor done anything? And finally she pulled me aside and she said, he thinks that you guys are junkies and he's not going to give you anything. And I'm like, what? The squarest, squarest ever squared. Which is ridiculous. And those of you that know us know that that is just ridiculous. But, uh, and I'm immediately just getting really, really pissed, which it's hard for me to get there, but I sat and I'm a pretty logical person and pragmatic. And I thought, well, if, um, if I throw a fit, she definitely doesn't get any help. So I asked the nurse, is there anything you could give her that a junkie wouldn't want? <laughs> and, um, she asked the doctor and the doctor gave her 500 milligrams of Thorazine, which some, a pharmacist later told me was some kind of liquid lobotomy. <laughs> Thank God for it. But it knocked <laughs> it knocked you out, and you were unconscious for like 15 hours in the hotel room. <laughs> and then we drove home, uh, you know, like 20 hours back to Indianapolis. 20 hours of me with my face covered to hide the light, and he couldn't listen to any radio or anything. I was so <laughs> sick. <laughs> so that's why I don't like to travel. <laughs> I don't like to leave home. Just think crazy things happen. It's not friendly out there. <laughs> I'm like a bird. I don't like to leave my nesting area. It's just not been friendly. <laughs> As I told you, I'm kind of a shy weirdo, and touring just pretty seems just seems crippling to me. And so I haven't I haven't done it. And I've made two records, and luckily Otis is kind enough to take them out and sell them for me. <laughs> and we've sold quite a few that way. It's kind of not a conventional way of doing things, but it's kind of worked for us. And I, that way I can still write and sing and people can hear it and like it. And, but I don't have to go out there and face all you people I'm scared of. The sad part is people tell me all the time how much they love it when they come to the merch table or whatever. And they tell me how much they enjoy your music, but you don't get to hear that. Oh, but I do. Cause well, one time Otis, um, he recruited some man in Scotland said how much he loved my record. So Otis held his phone up. A Scottish guy in his lovely accent can tell me how fantastic my record was. That that was a pretty sweet little gift because Otis was over there and I was you know back at home and it was a nice little treat to hear that. I emailed it to you, didn't I? Yeah, he emailed it to me and I have it on my. Um, it's right on my desktop. So whenever I'm feeling lonesome, I can go. <laughs> <laughs> I encourage anyone. If you see me out on the road and you enjoy Amy's record, come up and tell me that you'd like to have me record something, a little message for Amy. <laughs> I don't need that much boostering, do I? Hey, <laughs> Bolstering, boost, whatever the word we is. We all need that. <laughs> so how did you get the idea to, to make a children's book? Oh, I never thought I would, I would write anything like that, but it just kind of happened one night. I'm a bit of an insomniac, and um, I couldn't sleep, and all of a sudden this little idea came into my head and I just started writing it down and, and it turned into a children's book. I've written a couple, um, couple of others since then. And, um, well, the, the one that I actually self-published, um, 
came from a little song that I wrote about bed t- bedtime around a farm because everyone knows I'm an animal freak. <laughs> so it made sense that I would write a little kid's book about that. And um, so it's just a little illustrated song, really. And I illustrated it myself in my w- limited capabilities, but we've sold quite a few and it was a fun little experience. I want to do more. but I was proud of you because it sat around for a little bit and we're trying to find somebody to animate it. And then you just kind of took the reins and did it yourself, and it turned out, I think, better that way. Yeah, because I, I, the first that first story I was telling you about, I tried with four different people to have them illustrated it, illustrate it, and they were all excited. And yes, we're going to do it. And I got one picture, and that's all I ever got got from that. And it was a lot. It was it would have been a way harder project that I could than I could um, tackle. So this other this one the one that I actually did bedtime in the Kinsey Farm was easier and more basic drawings with just little animals and barns and such. <laughs> I think you read more than anybody I've ever met. <laughs> and you read fast too. <laughs> well, I'm no speed reader, but I do like to, I do like to read and I don't watch much television. So there's more time to do that than I think most people realize, don't realize how much time they sit in front of the TV. And instead of doing that, I, I usually read. You've never owned a television. I've never personally owned a television, but if you say that, people think you're an asshole or some kind of snob, because I can watch some TV. We could sit around and watch some MASH reruns or Simpsons or South Park or what have you. I'm not above TV. I've just, I just would rather spend my time doing other things. It's not that I'm too, too uh, intellectual for television, because I can hunker down <laughs> with a movie or TV. You did watch wrestling with me. <laughs> yeah. See, I'm not too snobby. I've just never owned my own television. <laughs> my boyfriend had one. <laughs> well, I appreciate you coming downstairs and chatting with me today. <laughs> it was a really hard trip. I got a hotel room along the way. It was a dangerous journey. <laughs> another one of the things Otis likes to tease me about. Every time we leave the house, he's like, this is a long trip. We'll probably need to stop and get a hotel on the way or maybe hit a rest stop. <laughs> it's like 10 minutes across town. <laughs> this is the man I live with right here. <laughs> well, we should go get breakfast or something. Bye. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Amy for being my guest this week. You can find out everything you need to know about Amy at amylashley.com. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to otisgibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt. You can download any record I've ever made. You can buy one of my photographic prints. You can buy one of Amy's records. You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy... We'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out, but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.